Welcome to the Middle East 101 lecture. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I'm the Principal Research Fellow at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Today, I'm extremely excited to have the chance to introduce to you Dr. Jonah Blank. He's going to talk about geopolitical competition in the Middle East, focusing on the United States and its allies. Previously, my colleague Clemens Bay have been talking about geopolitical competition in the Gulf, followed by Dr. Azif Suja and Dr. Serka Yolkan talking about Iran and uh, about Turkey geopolitical competition in the region. Uh, also, we have been talking about China and you are able to find the recording of the previous event on our online platforms. Also, if you want to ask a question, please feel free to do it uh, using the chat function that will allow you to communicate uh, with MEI event uh, and submit your question. Having said that, I do believe that today our lecture is extremely timely as just a couple of days after the beginning of the United Nations General Assembly, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez sounded the alarm. It was in his speech a wake-up call to end geopolitical competition in a time of COVID-19 pandemic, climate disruption, racial injustice, and rising inequality. So today, I'm very excited to have with us our senior fellow, uh, Dr. Blank, talking, looking at the angle of the United States. Uh, during uh, the General Assembly, uh, President Biden mentioned that the United States do not want a new Cold War. Of course, the missing name, the elephant in the room in the space was China. And then we have the right person to address uh, your question and this topic, because Dr. Jonah Blank is a political scientist and anthropologist. He serves as a policy director in the United States Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he began his professional life as a financial editor for the Azahi Evening News in Tokyo. Blank has taught graduate course at Harvard University, where he earned his PhD and master's degree, while he, uh, after receiving his degree, bachelor degree from Yale. Also, he has been teaching intensively at Georgetown University, George Washington University, Elliott School of International Affairs, and John Hopkins School of Advanced International Study. He is also a prolific writer and author of the books Mullah on the mainframe, an arrow of the blue skin at gold, retracting the Ramaya through, the, through India. Uh, Jonah, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Alex, and thanks to everyone at the Middle East Institute and all of our audience for participating. I will uh, give some introductory remarks, uh, but I'm really most eager for this to be a discussion. So I look forward to your questions and to, uh, to expanding on them. So first off, just a little bit more about who I am. Uh, in addition to the uh, items that Alex has kindly mentioned, uh, I'm an anthropologist of Islam uh, with particular uh, experience in one group that is spread throughout the whole world, the Daudiboras, who are more of a South Asian group than a Middle Eastern group, even though they began in Fatimid, Egypt, and for 400 years were located in Yemen. Uh, but as an anthropologist, I look at uh, political Islam and a lot of other issues throughout the world, 
And in terms of my policy background, I served as the uh, responsible, the policy director for the Middle East for one year for Joe Biden and for South Asia and Southeast Asia for the rest of my time with Joe Biden. So that was 1999 through 2009 and three additional years in the same capability for then chairman John Kerry on the US Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Since then, I have been affiliated with our RAND Corporation in Washington, doing most of my work uh, for government sponsors, the United States principally, but also including uh, the government of Singapore, and have looked at these issues from a variety of angles. So let me uh, say a few things about how the US looks at the Middle East. And we can use these comments perhaps as a jumping off point for a larger discussion. So first slide, please. I'll, I'll just note the, uh, the photograph that I've put up there uh, is, from, uh, is from Egypt uh, that I, I took many years ago. And um, as you can see, the, uh, the young boy there is giving a, uh, a bit of a rude gesture to me. Uh, he was actually, however, quite engaging and quite nice. He really wanted to talk to me. And we spent a while uh, in um, communication after that. And in some ways, this says a lot about the US uh, experience in the Middle East. There's a lot of initial frustration, and yet there also is uh, a lot of interest for the US to stay engaged. And both of these things exist at the very same time. Uh, so next slide, please. So here are uh, the, the items I'm going to run through, and we can use these as a jumping off point. I'll just go through them briefly, then I'll discuss each in turn. First, the US policy towards the Middle East tends to operate within a relatively narrow band and a relatively narrow set of perimeters. The maintenance of supply of oil is no longer the dominant issue. That's something that has changed in the past decade. Counterterrorism has dominated US policymaking, particularly since 9-11. Uh, the neoconservative movement uh, for a brief period was able to put through a very much more activist uh, interaction with the Middle East, but that was a relatively brief period of time, really uh, about six years with the peak period more like three. And looking to the future, the big picture for the Middle East as I see it is the schism between blocks dominated by the Saudis and the Gulf states versus uh, the bloc dominated by Iran. This breaks down roughly into a Sunni Shia division, to some extent an Arab non-Arab division, although these are very broad. And the big uh, thought here is that the US has not really responded in a coherent way to this narrative that is going to be uh, the, the big story out of the Middle East in the future. So I'll go through each of these now in turn. Next slide, please. The, uh, next slide, please. Thank you. Um, the parameters of US policy towards the Middle East are relatively constant, regardless of whether the presidency is held by a Democrat or Republican, and whether the Congress is held by a Democrat or the Republican. There's a lot more agreement between the two parties in foreign policy 
particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East, then there is disagreement. And that can seem strange if you've been reading uh, uh, recent news events about the US. As you're probably aware, we're in a particularly partisan moment in US politics. There's very little that most Americans agree upon in the political sphere. But that is much more the case in the domestic arena than in the international arena. In foreign policy, there's a lot more agreement. And in the Middle East in particular, there's a fair degree of alignment. Now, the biggest outlier in recent times has been the invasion of Iraq. At the time, that had a fair amount of bipartisan support, both in the public and in Congress, but that support was pretty shallow, uh, particularly among Democrats. This was seen as a Republican um, venture. It was a Republican administration, and most of the Democrats in the House and the Senate who voted for it did so with a certain amount of misgiving. And many, if not most of them, have since um, regretted that decision. That is true of Joe Biden. He has been public about his feeling that that was uh, not the best uh, vote and uh, that he, in his narrative, uh, he was uh, essentially trying to support the president of the United States at the time and felt that he had uh, not been dealt with uh, in full candor by the Bush administration. Many Democrats would probably have uh, a similar reaction today. I can say having been in the Senate at the time, there was a lot of misgiving among the Democrats about the invasion of Iraq and a certain amount among the Republicans. Uh, now now uh, deceased, uh, then chairman of foreign relations, uh, Richard Lugar, actually not chairman when uh, the invasion occurred, but around that, but shortly before then, uh, and shortly after as well, uh, he was very much in lockstep with uh, Joe Biden on the issue of Iraq, at least at many of these periods. They both were very uh, skeptical about the arguments that were being put forward for it. And they chaired a series of hearings the summer beforehand to air a lot of these questions. As it turns out, and I can talk about this more in the question period, uh, they uh, ended up giving the benefit of the doubt to President Bush. Other cases in which there has been a partisan divide in the Middle East have included the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or JCPOA that was uh, undertaken and sealed uh, by President Obama. Um, and the Trump administration's actions regarding Israel-Palestine. Uh, the Trump administration took a much more decided tilt towards Israel than any previous US administration. And that tilt was uh, really a very partisan effort uh, or was seen that way. Uh, it was seen to be much more of a Republican than a Democratic uh, priority. And I can speak more about that as well. Uh, next slide, please. So in which areas has US consensus shifted or is it shifting? The first major shift that I would point out is uh, one that is bipartisan. 
that means that U.S. policy has shifted, but both Democrats and Republicans are basically on the same page with that shift. And that shift is the change from seeing the Middle East in largely oil terms to seeing it in, say, post-oil terms. Throughout the late 19th, uh, throughout the late 20th century, the U.S. economy, like that of much of the rest of the world, was heavily dependent on oil. Um, the 1973 OPEC oil embargo um, was the uh, defining uh, moment for what could be called oil diplomacy. Every decision that the U.S. made about Middle East policy from the 1970s through the early 2000s had the overhang of the fact that the U.S. relied upon Middle Eastern oil and particularly relied on Saudi Arabia because the Saudis not only were the largest oil exporters, but had the unique ability through their excess capacity to determine the global, the global price of oil. That is, the Saudis had the ability, and to some extent still do, to make the price of oil go up, uh, up or down, simply because unlike other big producers, they can either flood the market with oil or keep oil from the market and thereby determine the price of oil even for countries that are not buying oil from Saudi Arabia. That has really influenced US decision-making throughout uh, much of the uh, post-World War II era. However, that has changed in the past decade. Since 2011, the US has been a net exporter of oil. That's been due to a change in technology. Fracking technology, for example, has expanded the amount of oil that the US is able to get from existing wells. And the US has expanded the areas in which it has drilled for oil in its own territory. So the US is now no longer dependent on the Middle East for its own oil. It still is affected because obviously is it affected by the world price of oil, but it's no longer a situation where US policymakers are fearing another oil embargo. And that really changes calculations. The second shift is a partisan one, and that is US attitudes towards Israel-Palestine. It used to be that both Democrats and Republicans alike marched pretty much in lockstep. And that step was, tilted quite heavily towards Israel, but was never tilted as far in Israel's direction as Israel wished. Uh, the US had never uh, accepted, for example, uh, the Israeli occupation of the uh, Palestinian territories in the West Bank. That has begun to change. In fact, it has uh, changed fairly uh, noticeably. The change began, uh, do, it, it all has occurred during the prime ministership of Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And it began during the first Obama administration when Netanyahu very decidedly started leaning towards the Republican party in American politics. And uh, Democrats and Obama administration officials believe that this was um, undue interference in America's internal political uh, discourse, and we're not particularly happy about it. This tilt towards the Republican Party on behalf of the uh, Netanyahu administration has accelerated greatly uh, during the Trump administration. Uh, there was very little 
attempt to hide this tilt on either side. Uh, the Trump administration um, appointed as an ambassador, uh, as a U.S. ambassador, someone who had financial uh, interests and investments in Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Uh, and um, Jared Kushner, his uh, son-in-law and advisor, also had investments there. Um, the Trump administration moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, something that no prior uh, administration had done. Uh, there have been a number of, of such steps and it has been reciprocated. Uh, there has been a feeling in democratic circles that Netanyahu has been essentially favoring the Republican party. That has opened space for some Democrats, uh, most notably Senator Bernie Sanders, but a number of others as well, to be vocal in support of Palestinian positions while still maintaining support for Israel as a nation. Uh, that is, that's a new thing. Uh, that would not have been something you would have seen 15 years ago uh, from virtually anyone in American politics. Now it's an acceptable position within the Democratic Party. Next, next slide, please. Counterterrorism in U.S. policy. Uh, Counterterrorism has always been, or at least since the 1970s, has always been a, uh, a key, even a heavily weighted aspect of American policy. When U.S. policy is formed towards the Middle East, counterterrorism has been, since then, one of the, the big issues on the table. Uh, during the 1980s, the big event was the bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon by Hezbollah. Uh, but there have been any number, of course, of terrorist actions since then. And since the 1990s, the focus has shifted much more towards uh, radical Sunni groups rather than Hezbollah, most notably, of course, Al-Qaeda, uh, and in more recent years, ISIS. Uh, this has very much shaped U.S. attitudes, and the prime example has been the invasion of Iraq. Often uh, these attitudes have you or these initiatives have relied on counterterrorism rationale to advance broader geopolitical interests. For example, advocates of the war in, in Iraq had the geopolitical goal of making the US the dominant player in the region. And depending on which actors we're talking about of spreading democracy or spreading pro-US uh, views or keeping Russia and other uh, potential adversaries out of the region, or keeping Iran from expanding its, uh, its influence. There have been a number of different causes, but the rationale advanced was counterterrorism. Uh, then Vice President Dick Cheney, uh, and then uh, Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, um, and then uh, Secretary of State uh, Condi Rice, uh, were quite uh, forthright in saying that their rationale for the invasion was the theory that Saddam Hussein would uh, create or develop weapons of mass destruction and pass them on to Al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups. Now, that was never a tie. The Saddam to Al-Qaeda was never a tie that had any factual basis, but without that prospect of counterterrorism, it would have been very difficult to imagine a war uh, in, uh, in Iraq being able to be sold to the American people. To this day, counterterrorism strongly influences US policy towards Saudi Arabia, which is viewed as a partner in counterterrorism efforts, 
and Iran, which is viewed as an adversary. There's an inherent paradox here, of course, in that uh, 14 of the 19 uh, perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks were Saudis. Uh, and since the bombing of the Marine barracks, there have been no uh, mass casualties, uh, uh, terrorist attacks on that scale perpetrated by uh, Iranian proxies against American targets. Uh, but this is still the framework in which a lot of the discourse is, uh, is given and in which a lot of the decisions are made. One of the knock-on effects is that US uh, policies build as counterterrorism efforts have often had exactly the opposite effect of those that are intended. One of the examples here, of course, is Abu Ghraib, where in the course of occupying Iraq, uh, US forces captured and held many prisoners who uh, were accused of terrorist actions. Uh, many, if not most of them, had no ties whatsoever to terrorism, but that was the rubric under which a lot of them were held. And, uh, at least some of them were abused and tortured. And when the photographs from Abu Ghraib and the stories of other sites came out, this fueled the rise of a very real terrorist group, ISIS, uh, which then became one of, if not the greatest uh, current threats to uh, counterterrorism threats to the US today. Uh, next slide, please. Illusions about US policy towards the Middle East. When evaluating US policy, um, it's, it's important to make the judgments based on what actually happens and what actually doesn't. Um, I've traveled to a lot of different countries in the course of being a US government official, and I've heard a lot of wild theories uh, about what is truly behind US uh, strategy in the Middle East. Some of these have veered uh, into the wild ends of conspiracy theory. Others have simply been um, exaggerations of things that actually are real. So uh, this is something that's important to kind of winnow the, the wheat from the chaff. And we can get into more of this in the discussion time. Um, one of the ones, though, that is probably most useful to uh, sort of set aside or, or add some nuance to is the myth that the US public or policymakers are eager to engage in prolonged military action in the Middle East and are kind of looking to, uh, to occupy, take and hold territory there, that there is a, a strong uh, incentive to go to war in the Middle East. Having been there in the decision-making circles, I can say that's, uh, for most periods and most times, that's just not the case. U.S. military involvement in the Middle East, particularly when we're talking about boots on the ground, is almost always unpopular with the American people and a pretty tough sell for U.S. policymakers. Even during Gulf War I, that is the 1991 invasion of Iraq, which had bipartisan support, was pretty widely su supported by the American people, and was uh, viewed as quite successful. It uh, took just a, a Couple, uh, it took just a couple months and there were very few casualties and it was about as easy a war as the US has had in recent, uh, in recent history. 
But even that was not something that any policymakers uh, really wanted to get engaged in. Now, I was not in US government at the time, but I dealt with the policymakers who were. And this was uh, a bit of a tough pull, even for the administration, which decided to go in. And it certainly was not a vote that people in Congress wanted to take. Joe Biden voted against that war. Uh, so even that, the so-called easy war, was not seen as an easy call. Now, Iraq is the main counterexample, because Iraq was a war of choice that the administration at the time did want to engage in, and that at least for a period, the American people agreed with. This was a, a very rare example in which policymakers succeeded in overcoming a deep set popular reluctance for boots on the ground in the Middle East. This was, I would say, the result of a rather rare set of circumstances, the most noteworthy being 9-11. I think it would have been difficult, if not impossible, to persuade the American people and their representatives to authorize this if 9-11 had not been the predicate. Even there, it was championed by a group of uh, political figures uh, often referred to as neoconservatives or neocons who very much saw U.S. military force as a, a good way of advancing U.S. goals. Uh, they were pretty unashamed and pretty uh, forthright about saying that the U.S. should use its military power to expand its geopolitical influence. And their argument was, this is easier than most people think. It can be done with very few casualties, and people in the Middle East will thank us for it will be greeted as liberators is exactly the term uh, used. Uh, the influence of the neocons peaked with the uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003 and declined rather precipitously as that mission started to go south. So they really only kind of dominated US decision-making circles for about uh, five to six years and have not really been a, a major factor in either party's thinking since. Could they come back in the future? Sure they could, but at least if we're talking about what has been the case, uh, it's only been a relatively brief period. Most of US military engagement that has been advocated has been airstrikes. You've heard Warhawks advocating airstrikes against uh, Iran, against Syria, uh, against Iraq before the invasion. The thing that to understand about that is that these are uh, typically symbolic. Airstrikes without boots on the ground typically do not do a whole lot. The U.S. learned that lesson in Kosovo and elsewhere in the Balkans during the Clinton administration, when President Bill Clinton tried to advance U.S. policy aims without any boots on the ground, and it didn't really result in a whole lot of change. The same has been true for the rather limited use of U.S. military power outside of invasion. We've seen that in Syria, where you can drop a few bombs, but it doesn't really change a whole lot of calculus. U.S. Uh, partners and um, groups that are not partners have seen the same thing. Uh, Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia has been engaging in an air war against Yemen for years without actually achieving its aims. Uh, next slide, please. The major military, uh, the major um, issue 
in the Middle East, not a military one, uh, is one that I would say the US has not coherently yet addressed and perhaps uh, will uh, or will have to. And that's the issue that will dominate, is already beginning to dominate and will in more so in the future, the whole geopolitical equation in the Middle East. And that is the setting up of two rival blocks, one uh, dominated or led by Saudi Arabia and uh, Gulf state allies, the other dominated or led by Iran. One of them almost entirely Sunni, the other largely, but by no means entirely, perhaps not even majority, but uh, something, uh, something like a majority Shia. One essentially completely Arab, the other probably a majority Arab, but um, at least uh, approaching parity, non-Arab. Uh, of course, Iran uh, overwhelmingly non-Arab, uh, but including other minority populations in the region. Uh, so these groups are in one sense, are they are political, they are religious, they are linguistic in some senses, they are uh, to some degree ethnic, uh, they are to a large degree social as well. And they, uh, they kind of determine a lot of the fault lines of how geopolitics uh, have operated. They have been the fault line in the civil war in, in Iraq. They've been the, civil, the fault line of the civil war in uh, Syria. They are the fault line of the civil war in Yemen. Uh, they are the, the proxy of war being fought uh, either with military means or merely with ideological means throughout the region. And over time, I would argue, there has not been a coherent US response to the schism. In the 1970s, before the fall of Iran, the US tilted heavily towards Iran. The Shah was a, a proxy and partner of the US. After the Iranian revolution, Iran has been generally treated as an adversary, although even that has been much more complicated. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been seen as a problematic partner throughout, um, less of a partner certainly during the 1970s, much more so since, but always a very problematic one, always um, both a, what one might, might call a frenemy. Uh, and some of this has been tied up with how Iran and Saudi Arabia in turn have dealt with Israel. Israel has tried to ally or at least to have a, a unity of purpose with one block or the other at different times. And the US has, depending on whose narrative you go from, has either followed along with Israel or worked in, in conjunction with Israel. The point here though is that these seem, at least to me, to have been largely ad hoc rather than strategic decisions. And it's hard to really place one's finger on where US policy is going to go in the future or what the underlying ideological uh, and strategic rationale is for aligning with either bloc or, uh, or with neither. Neither of these blocks, it should be noted, truly represents the aspirations of the population, even of the nation that is leading its block. Uh, both ruling uh, regimes are um, at a minimum uh, less than fully democratic, which might be a, um, an understatement, some might say, and certainly can't be said to be the, the full expression of all of the people in all of the nations that they are seeking to lead. Uh, 
However, both of these blocs do give voice to popular frustrations, not only within their countries, but throughout the entire region. And a lot of these frustrations are directed for both good reasons and bad ones against the US. So you have both the Saudi-led Sunni bloc and the Iranian-led largely Shia bloc uh, expressing frustrations of their people and directing them towards the US at the same time. And the US trying to figure out which of these blocs to ally with or which of these to ally against and how to deal with this dynamic. Uh, this schism will shape the Middle East geopolitics of the future. And to my mind, one of the real questions is whether the US will figure out a coherent way of dealing with a dynamic in which it is portrayed as the enemy by both of these blocs and uh, essentially being used uh, by uh, actors uh, against its own interests without really being clear about what its own interests are, or at least not articulating in a way that the people of the Middle East are, are able to understand what its legitimate interests are and what it really has no interest in uh, imposing upon the Middle East uh, and uh, in just um, uh, trying to put to rest some of the uh, conspiracies, the uh, conspiracy thinking that uh, really causes a lot of anti-US sentiment that goes beyond actual US positions. I think at this point, it would be good for me to kick it back to Alex and let him uh, point guard some of the question and answer. Thank you very much, Jonah, for the very informative uh, lecture. And uh, I really enjoyed looking at the angle that you have uh, from your perspective, a front row seat being a US government official. Uh, we have already a ton of questions. I will try to group some of them uh, in order to, to give it some space. Uh, but uh, the first one, basically, if you are going to answer, we are going to, to need more than one hour, or at least several days. <laughs> and the first question is, how US policy in the Middle East being shaped by 9-11? Mm. Well, I think the most important issue there is that it, it opened the space for new approaches, both good and bad. I would argue, and I did argue at the time, that most of the space it opened was one that led to bad approaches. I was a rather firm opponent of the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I felt that it would be a disaster for Iraq, for the region, and for the US. And I wish I'd been wrong, but I think that facts have sort of borne that out. Uh, it also opened space for the, um, the to be, to be blunt about it, for the return of the US or for the initiation of the US uh, to a policy of torture and of rampant abuse of uh, people both in the Middle East, but also throughout the world, uh, primarily Muslims and largely Middle Eastern ones. Uh, this occurred both in Iraq and in uh, Guantanamo Bay and in secret sites throughout the world. And this all occurred under the rubric of counterterrorism it would have been difficult to see how any administration could have gotten away with this if it had not been in the immediate aftermath of such a traumatic event and the very real fear that there might be other attacks coming. However, it's important to remember that many people were objecting to this at the time. 
I was objecting to this at the time. It was obvious to me at the time that this was morally wrong and was a geopolitical blunder. And Joe Biden agreed with me. In fact, one of my prouder moments in the US Senate was when the Bush administration was revealed to have been engaged in a process of waterboarding. Waterboarding is torture. And this torture technique was used by the US government on at least some terrorism suspects. We don't know how many, uh, but at least some, and has been used uh, in ways that did not make the US safer, and I would argue made the US rather less safe. So uh, to make this point, I brought Joe Biden a photograph of a, the waterboard contraption used by the Khmer Rouge, the genocidal regime in Cambodia uh, that was renowned for its use of torture and, uh, and genocide. Uh, and there is a waterboard that anyone can see uh, set up in the museum at Kuosalung in, uh, in uh, Phnom Penh in, in Cambodia. And I took a picture of it and I brought it back from Cambodia and uh, blew it up into a big poster for Joe Biden to bring onto the floor of the US Senate and say, look, my colleagues, this is what a waterboard looks like. Because at that point, virtually no one in the US Senate had ever seen a waterboard. Uh, um, Vice President Dick Cheney had described it as a, uh, a, little, um, a little drop of water uh, and um, various other administration officials were also downplaying the, the horrific nature of waterboarding. So Joe Biden showed this is what a waterboard looks like. This is how it's used. And this particular waterboard was used by the most awful regime in later 20th century history. Uh, that I, uh, I felt proud of the boss then, and I felt proud when uh, on a bipartisan basis, John McCain, Republican John McCain, was the most active force in US government to remove torture from the US practice. He had a special reason for this because for five years he was tortured as a prisoner of war. So he knew what he was talking about. Uh, the, the bigger point here is that torture became an instrument of US policy in response to 9-11. And it made the US less safe. And this is not just revisionist thinking. This was obvious to many people at the time. And we said so. And I hope that it doesn't take another disaster to make sure that the US never returns to that. But I, I fear we're already slipping because the former president, Donald Trump, uh, very explicitly supported torture. He promised to bring torture back. He promised to bring, in his words, waterboarding and even worse back. And he was stopped by Marine General Jim Mattis, uh, who he then made his, uh, uh, his Secretary of Defense. Um, I'm very grateful that Secretary Mattis did that because uh, I think it would be a moral and geopolitical disaster if the US went back to the days of torture. And uh, I think, John, the next question, uh, uh, it's quite a follow-up to what you just said, and it's come from uh, Devin. Uh, the question is, in view of the history of the mistake by the U.S. in the Middle East, do you think that the U.S. government have the ability to learn from their mistake in their future dealings with the region? Ah, a good question. Um, 
I think that the U.S. government, like uh, all governments, like all people, uh, has the ability to learn from its mistakes, and yet it all too seldom actually does so. I think uh, that's true for most of us in our own lives, uh, certainly true of most governments. And in many ways, the more powerful you are, the greater leeway you have to get away with terrible mistakes. Uh, I hope that the US will learn. History has shown that no nation really learns a lesson for, for very long unless it is a particularly painful lesson and keeps on being repeated. So I think that right now we're in a moment when the US uh, feels it has learned the mistake of invasion and occupation uh, under unnecessary circumstances. I add that provision because not every war is a mistake, not every invasion is a mistake, uh, but wars of choice generally are, invasions of choice generally are. The Middle East is a particularly bad place, in my view, for any outside power to try to invade. Uh, and I think there's almost no appetite in the US right now for repeating those same mistakes. I expect that this knowledge will last um, a decade, maybe a generation, hopefully long enough that uh, by the time my sons are of, uh, are of military age, if they choose to go into the military, then if they are deployed, it will not be in an exercise like Iraq. And I think that as a father is a wish that everybody can, can share with you. Now, uh, I have a question that expands a little bit the, the border of the Middle East, moving to the MENA region and even to the African continent. Uh, is uh, from an anthropological point of view, how political Islamic movement in uh, Egypt and Western Sahara give oxygen to extremist group, your opinion? Oh, very, very good question. And uh, I always love any question that lets me put on my anthropologist hat. Uh, I, in my view, um, the, the rise of political Islam is, um, is something that has both spurred uh, more violent uh, expressions and contained them at the same time, because it has opened the space for discussions of political Islam within a political context. So if you are a young man in Egypt or in Algeria and you take Islam seriously, and you want this to be a part of your uh, political life. If you want your country to be governed by Islamic principles, then having Islamic political parties and Islamist political parties is something that can channel that into the political system where in my view it is 100% legitimate. It also um, opens up more discussion space for more radical uh, groups that might, that might reject politics. So when you have a situation of a, uh, a dictatorship, say the Hosni Mubarak uh, dictatorship in Egypt, uh, it was not a safe thing if you were a young Islamist in Egypt in the 1990s. It was not a safe thing to be discussing these ideas. Uh, you might never have a violent thought in your head, but you would be keeping your mouth shut. And perhaps you didn't have a violent thought in your head, but because all the discussion was underground, that might turn you to violence. You might go from being an Islamist 
who was part of the Muslim Brotherhood and wanted just to participate in the political process, you might go to joining a, a group like Al-Qaeda or Gamaslamiya that were very violent and, uh, and uh, were terrorist groups, still are, uh, in the case of Al-Qaeda. Uh, Gamaslamiya essentially defunct, but you know who knows. Uh, what happened after Hosni Mubarak fell? Well, there was an election and the Muslim Brotherhood won. And this caused a lot of uh, heartrending in uh, a number of Western capitals. My feeling at the time and my feeling now is that the, uh, the US and other nations should have welcomed this uh, because this was the, a legitimate election. The people of Egypt legitimately elected an Islamist political party that was not a violent political party. And whether that party was friendly to the US or to other outside countries or not, that was the legitimate choice of the Egyptian people. Um, that was not how it played out. Um, outside parties, uh, at least tacitly, supported a return to military-dominated rule. Uh, I think that that is going to turn out to be a setback for uh, the battle to um, to give political space to legitimate Islamist political movements. So I think that it, to get directly, to, to return to directly to the question, I think it does both. And that sounds like, I don't mean that to sound like a dodge. I mean it to sound like uh, the fact that it truly does both take some people who um, might otherwise go to Al-Qaeda and turn them into nonviolent political actors, but it does, to be honest, take some people who might not have been politically active and give them the breathing space so that they uh, they might end up in some extreme places. And I feel that the pluses of bringing these groups into the political process far outweigh the downside of it. Now, I'm just uh, collating several questions in one, and uh, they are all related to how the fall of Kabul is impacting on the perception of the U.S. security umbrella in the Middle East. In one question, Ian is asking you, uh, what do you think is the future of U.S.-Middle East relation since the Afghan retreat put the U.S. in the back burner? And following this, Abhishek, uh, apologies uh, if I pronounce not correctly the name, uh, what do you think will be the implication for terrorism perpetuated after U.S. retreat from Afghanistan? Okay. Uh, the first issue involves uh, that of U.S. credibility. You know, if the U.S. was not going to defend the government of Afghanistan, is the word of the U.S. good? I think it is, and I think that this will not have the kind of drastic impact that a lot of people fear uh, for this reason. The U.S. has for 20 years been propping up a dysfunctional and uh, pretty, um, pretty unrepresentative government in Afghanistan. That was true under Hamid Karzai and, uh, to my chagrin, continued to be true under Ashraf Ghani. I say to my chagrin because Ashraf Ghani is a personal friend of mine, and I think that uh, if a technocrat, a fellow anthropologist, a person who uh, has never had credible allegations of corruption launched against him, someone who authored a book on, uh, on rebuilding fragile states, someone who, uh, who rebuilt the, uh, the Afghan uh, financial system essentially from scratch, 
uh, and someone who uh, comes from a uh, Pashtun tribal background that gives him uh, credibility that an outside technocrat would not normally have. If someone like him couldn't get the job done, it really does, um, I think, uh, make clear that this was a very difficult task to accomplish. Uh, the US has been uh, pretty clear about wanting to disengage from Afghanistan for a long time. I was with Joe Biden in January 2009 when he reached that conclusion, and he reached it about 10 months before I did, and about 10 years before uh, most Americans did, or at least before the uh, decision-making elite did. Um, but uh, the U.S. has been ramping down its commitment to Afghanistan ever since the, uh, the surge uh, under the uh, Obama administration. Uh, I think also that the, uh, the idea that the U.S. will fight uh, a, a war forever uh, doesn't, uh, on the basis of credibility, I think that that theory of the case uh, should have been put to rest after Vietnam because the same argument was used by the Nixon administration and others for why to continue a war in Vietnam that the US had lost and that was not serving the interests of the Vietnamese people, not serving the interests of the American people, not really serving anybody's interests, really. So at, at some point, you, you ask the question that uh, my, my other boss, John Kerry, asked uh, very famously in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, how do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? And that, I think, is where Joe Biden was when he took office as president. And the answer he came up with is, you don't. <laughs> you, uh, you, you uh, make sure not to uh, hand this off to another president. So I, I don't think that this is going to lead to a drastic loss of U.S. credibility. On the second point about how this will affect U.S. counter uh, about counterterrorism. Uh, we have to be honest here. I think that there is, that uh, the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban will provide sanctuary and increased space for a variety of terrorist groups. And the U.S. ability to combat these groups or even to know what they're doing will be greatly degraded. Uh, we do not now have a friendly, if ineffective, government in Kabul. We have an unfriendly government. Uh, we do not have the ability to have U.S troops, including or U.S. intelligence presence in Afghanistan, because a lot of the rationale for troop presence was U.S. intelligence presence. And some of this I can speak about and other of it I can't speak about. Uh, but uh, uh, the intelligence piece of it is really uh, quite a significant one. And that's going to be very much harmed. Um, to put this in perspective, however, and I think we always have to, when talking about counterterrorism, we have to maintain some perspective. 9-11 was the worst terrorist attack ever uh, suffered by the US. Right now in the US, we lose a 9-11 toll to COVID every couple of days. So should the US be spending $2 trillion uh, to uh, fight another 9-11 when According to IMF estimates, it would cost only $50 billion to vaccinate the entire world against COVID. And that would be the most effective way to make sure that the Delta variant is not supplanted by 12 other variants uh, that follow and might be incubating right now in a part of the world where, in, where uh, vaccination rates are 2% instead of the 80% that we are lucky enough to enjoy here in Singapore.
Okay, John, as you mentioned several times, waterboarding, definitely we don't want you to talk about what you cannot talk. Mm -hmm. But having said that, uh, I have a very intriguing question from the audience. Uh, and is uh, you have highlighted U.S. policy concern in the Middle East. Could you spend some time on highlighting how the U.S. visualized the Middle East as a region? So simply, when we want to think of how the U.S. think of the Middle East, what image should we have in mind? Hmm. Um, Alex, can I ask you to sort of um, I, uh, clarify the question so that I don't answer the wrong question. Are we talking geographically or ideologically? Um, how would you like me to answer that? Uh, I think for that, we will need to, to get the person who asked the question to, to send or, me a line. Or, but or, meanwhile, or, uh, we, we can like jump in. I can in. do both, yeah, can we, do both we, if you like. Geographically, it's, it's worth noting that in geographic bureaucratic terms, uh, the US government, uh, up until relatively recently, certainly the post 9-11 period, uh, the US had a term called NISA, Near East South Asia, uh, that defined the, uh, the Middle East and South Asia. So it was the entire stretch of geography from Morocco through Bangladesh. And in, in bureaucratic terms, if you were the person who handled the Middle East, your portfolio was generally called NISA, Near East South Asia. That, in fact, was my portfolio when I covered that area for Joe Biden. I was responsible in my first uh, portfolio for Joe Biden for every country from Morocco through Bangladesh. Uh, and after a year of doing that, I went to Joe Biden and said, boss, I, I want to um, reshuffle my portfolio a little bit. Uh, I can't do the Middle East and do South Asia at the same time and give do uh, do accord to both. You know, one of them has got to be shortchanged. That's too much attention for any one person. So I've got another colleague who's, who really wants to do the Middle East. He had done it before I came to the committee. He went to the State Department and then he came back and we were sort of looking for a way to divide up the portfolio between us. He really wanted to focus on the Middle East and did not want to do South Asia or Southeast Asia. I love Southeast Asia and uh, love uh, South Asia. So I was quite happy to say, look, the Middle East has a lot of headaches. And to be honest, there are very few good answers there. It's always about coming up with the least bad answer you can. So I'll let my colleague deal with the headaches of trying to figure out the Israeli-Palestinian question. I'm going to take the easy portfolio of Afghanistan. This was before 9-11. I'll take the easy portfolio of Afghanistan through Indonesia. Uh, as it turns out, it turned out not to be quite so easy, but it was very exciting. So, um, NISA, so traditionally, the US has seen the, the Middle East as a subset of Near East and South Asia. More commonly now, it's seen as either just, uh, say, the Arab Middle East without North Africa, but also including Iran, or sometimes including North Africa, sometimes including Turkey, although usually Turkey is not included because it's a member of NATO. Um, sometimes Afghanistan is included, but usually not. Usually Afghanistan is treated with uh, South Asia. However, uh, what is the Middle East really depends on who's doing the asking. Next part of the question is ideologically, how does the US see the Middle East? And 
That's a big essay question. I'll just say to start out, and we can come back to this if the if the questioner has a, wants to recalibrate the question. Um, the U.S. has traditionally seen the Middle East as a source of oil and as the um, global center of Islam, uh, and as the the place where Israel is. And beyond that, it, you know, those have been three kind of points of U.S. policy. I think that's a very unnuanced and largely unhelpful way of seeing the Middle East. Uh, but then I'm an anthropologist by training rather than uh, um, a US policymaker by training. Now, I think uh, with this question, we are moving uh, from Africa and Sahel to, to Asia, and uh, we are going to look uh, at the elephant in the room, and that's China. Uh, the question is from Ray Wong. And he's asking, in what ways and to what extent do you think that strategic competition with China will influence U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East? Um, I would say it's not going to be as large a factor as, uh, as say, U.S. competition with China is throughout the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, U.S. competition with China obviously is a huge issue here in Southeast Asia, a huge issue in North Asia, a very big issue in South Asia, Middle East less so. I think that there's a lot of discussion about this, but I think a lot of it is bluff. Um, to give an example of Afghanistan, uh, part of the discourse surrounding the US withdrawal from Afghanistan was uh, the, uh, the specter of China moving in and assuming uh, the U.S. place as the dominant power. There was discussion of China uh, exploiting Afghanistan's mineral resources, of even running a pipeline on, uh, through Afghanistan to the Middle East. In my view, this is absurd. I think that China has no interest and no uh, intent to do that. And uh, the, the test of this is that they had the ability to launch any project they wished for the past 20 years with the US providing a security umbrella for free. Why on earth would they do it now without a security umbrella uh, when they'd have to shoulder all the costs? And beyond that, if they wish to, great. I think that if, the U if China wants to uh, assume the obligations of security provider in Afghanistan and a lot of other places in, the, in, in what I would call the Middle East, uh, you know, basically Iran through North Africa, then uh, I think uh, this in most cases should be welcomed. Uh, China's interests in the Middle East are largely focused around assuring a stable supply of oil, um, of making sure that it has stability, that it has no surprises. I don't really see China's interests in the Middle East being a, an existential threat to US interests. Uh, not everyone in Washington agrees with me, but whenever they don't, I always like to ask them, why, what are you afraid of? Lay out for me, what your nightmare scenario is of China's involvement in the Middle East. China was very helpful in achieving the JCPOA, that is the, uh, the nuclear deal with Iran. This was not a deal between the United States and Iran. This was a deal with the world community in Iran. It was the US and Europe and Russia and China, all of them in a deal with Iran. So I think that that's an example where China was very much advancing uh, shared interests. And I, uh, I think that, uh, that that is a pattern that we could see replicated.
And then uh, I think with this question, we are looking at the part very intriguing for your presentation when you mentioned the myth and conspiracy theory. Uh, the question is, what does U.S. do about entry of weapon into the Middle East? There is a theory that U.S. has founded presence of weapon in the Middle East. Is there any truth to this? Um, let's see, are we talking about the, uh, the question of uh, WMD, weapons of mass destruction, uh, and Saddam Hussein, or, um, or am I misinterpreting the question? Uh, I do believe that we are on a uh, weapon of mass destruction. Uh, but then again, if you want, you can address broadly uh, the question of myth and conspiracy theory, uh, debunking some myth if you want, uh, or addressing uh, conspiracy theories that have some fundamental truth. Okay. Uh, on the question of um, was Saddam uh, constructing weapons of mass destruction and did those cause, were those a threat to the U.S.? Uh, this, I would say, is a myth generated by the US government, the Bush administration, um, rather than one generated outside of the US about the, uh, the US. And the reason I say that is that uh, Saddam Hussein never had a substantial nuclear program and he never had a substantial biological weapons program. And everybody who took a close look at the facts before the Iraq invasion knew this. Um, the the reason that, that the Bush administration was able to conflate uh, this uh, into weapons of mass destruction is it added in chemical weapons, which Saddam had indeed had. He'd used them against his own populace, against his Kurdish populace and against his Shia populace, and he'd used them in battle against Iranian forces. So Saddam definitely had had chemical weapons it was a surprise that he no longer had chemical weapons at the time of invasion, because it was quite legitimate to expect that he still did. And it's possible that he even thought he still did. That, that part is still a little bit up in the air. But the important thing about chemical weapons is that they were no threat to the United States, except for troops invading Iraq. Uh, Chemical weapons are not something that can be simply put on a missile and launched from Baghdad to New York, um, or at least uh, it would be very uh, logistically uh, difficult to do so and very easy to, uh, to block, and Saddam didn't have the capability of doing that in any case. So by folding in a capability that Saddam had had in the past and may have had in the present, but which was not a threat to the US except for invasion, with two other capabilities, biological and nuclear, which would have been a threat to the US if Saddam had possessed them, but he didn't. The Bush administration was able to create the specter of a threat where one did not, where one did not exist to the US homeland. So that, um, to the extent, so if I'm interpreting the question directly, um, that's how I would address it. Um, in terms of, uh, conspiracy theories about arms, uh, US, U.S. arms manufacturers uh, influencing U.S. policy, which may be another interpretation of what the questioner is asking. Um, I'll address that, whether that is the questioner's intent or not, because it is a conspiracy theory that I hear often and which has at least some uh, basis, in fact, in that U.S. arms manufacturers are a powerful lobby uh, in Washington. And they 
um, have a very strong weight on US policy. However, that does not mean that the US goes to war to advance the interests of Lockheed, Martin Marietta, or any other defense contractor. Uh, yes, it is true that arms manufacturers are a powerful lobby and succeed in getting the US to purchase a lot of weapons that it perhaps doesn't need and to allow the export of weapons to countries that either do not need them or perhaps use them against the interests of their own or the American people. Uh, but that's different from saying that the US went to war to serve the interests of Lockheed or other defense contractors. No, as you mentioned that, I just recall a report that had just come out now in the press, uh, and it's about the salary of the CEO of uh, the U.S. military industry complex, and it just made me realize that I'm in the wrong line of business. Uh, having said uh, Alex, that, Alex, I'll just say that for your own karmic goodwill, you are in the right line of uh, business. Whenever I have uh, had similar moments of shock at seeing how much money some uh, lobbyists, whether it is arms manufacturers, pharmaceutical, whatever one may say, how much money they're earning. I always um, console myself with the fact that if they have consciences, uh, they probably are troubled consciences. Moving from that, uh, uh, we have another question from Ray Wong. Uh, uh, and uh, I think in his question, he's not thinking about France while I am. How has the relationship between the US and its allied country evolved over the course of its counterterrorism campaign in the Middle East? Mm. Um, well, why don't I uh, start with France since that's on everybody's mind right now. Um, and I'll be uh, a little bit contrarian, uh, although not, not contrarian in US terms, but perhaps in, uh, in regional terms, or at least in uh, terms uh, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, a lot of the discourse of, uh, of uh, French friends. Um, I, I think actually that, the, uh, that Australia's decision was the right one. This is the Australia, uh, for those of you who have not been following this as closely, um, Australia decided to uh, break a contract for $60 billion to purchase diesel subs uh, from France and instead to uh, engage in a $90 billion uh, contract to um, construct uh, nuclear powered subs with uh, the US and Britain. Uh, that's an oversimplification. A lot of the subs are going to be built in Australia and a lot of the uh, like for every arms transfer, the, the pieces come from virtually everywhere in the arms manufacturing world, but that's the big part of it. Uh, these diesel subs were already somewhat obsolete for Australia's needs and would have been completely obsolete by the time they would have been delivered. Um, nuclear powered subs are completely different from nuclear weapons carrying subs. So we should be very clear that even though these subs are nuclear propelled, they do not carry nuclear uh, weapons and Australia has, has no nuclear weapons and has pledged never to get any. It is part of the nuclear uh, proliferation uh, uh, treaty and the non-proliferation treaty and is treaty bound not to. Uh, but nuclear subs can stay submerged for months at a time rather than for weeks at a time for diesel subs. Uh, the place where I think the US and Australia uh, went wrong is I think they should have been more transparent with France. Uh, France should not have learned of this just at the very last minute. In fairness, if they had uh, brought France into the negotiations earlier, France would have used every tool in its toolbox 
to crush the deal before it got uh, before it got implemented. So I can understand the um, the rationale, but uh, I also can understand why France is is rather put off by it. Um, the larger question, I think, of U.S. cooperation in counterterrorism in uh, the, in the in the Middle East. Um, partly depends what countries we're talking about. And this gets to the issue of regional countries versus those outside the region. Uh, the US cooperates very closely with Saudi Arabia, with several of the Gulf states. Um, and this sets up some, some paradoxes because each of the partners also uh, is somewhat conflicted and um, has its own interests that are always not, they're not necessarily running parallel to US interests. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a problematic partner in a lot of different ways. And um, that unfortunately is the truth for all counterterrorism. You know, if you are only partnering with uh, Finland or you know, Norway, you're only going after a very small subset of the uh, terrorism universe. You know, if you're partnering against uh, right-wing, you know, uh, white supremacist uh, um, uh, terrorist groups, then yes, you you know, you may want to. But if you're partnering against Al Qaeda and ISIS, maybe not so much. And then uh, I can link it with another question, uh, as you just mentioned, this different relation, especially with, with the Saudi. And the question asks, why does the U.S. threat Iran as an enemy and Saudi Arabia as a friend, given the two nations less than perfect human rights record and association with anti-American radical group? Could the case be made for opposite alignment? Yes, exactly. And that was exactly one of the uh, bullet points I put up, that... Um, a case could be made uh, for aligning, aligning with either one of these or aligning with neither. Uh, both countries have problematic human rights records. Neither one could be described as a true democracy. Both um, have had some rather anti-American um, elements in their policy making over the past few decades, to put it mildly. Uh, and uh, the U.S. has shifted its emphasis towards one and towards the other at different times. I would say that the U.S. has not really laid out a coherent strategy in dealing with these contradictions. I think the questioner is absolutely right that this is a contradiction and that the U.S. has not dealt with that contradiction. Uh, I. I have a, a fair degree of sympathy for U.S. policymakers because it's uh, it's a very thorny problem. How do you either align with either one when both are so problematic, and how would you walk away from both when uh, it's rather difficult for a superpower to walk away from the Middle East? Uh, you know, the Middle East is not going to walk away from you. And, uh, basically, we are getting back uh, uh, with the question of lesson learned, and this question comes from Celine. Part of geopolitics is engaging with local activists and civil society. In the Middle East, what success has occurred and what lesson has the U.S. learned? Ah, good, good question. Um, let's, see. let's see. Just got a, what's it? Um, 
tell you, actually, Alex, can I ask you just to speak for me? I've, I've got a TV interview a little later and they're sort of pestering me. I want to just tell them to, to stop calling me. Can I let you talk for a minute or so while I tell them that? Okay, absolutely no problem. Take your time and we can go back and we are basically at the end. I'm not going to talk about China again, but definitely uh, we can have uh, some of our colleagues. Please, you just take uh, your call at the moment. And uh, we are looking basically, I'm just refreshing which question we have uh, waiting to be answered. And I will say it back to you. Uh, later on. So basically, we have this question from Selena that is looking about lesson learned and uh, geopolitics engaging local activists, civil society in the Middle East. Success story, lesson learned. Then uh, we have uh, a quite compelling set of questions related to the relationship uh, with uh, allied country uh, that span out from the Middle East to Afghanistan uh, in terms of uh, US uh, lack of credibility. And uh, last but not least, uh, we have another question uh, about your presentation uh, when you mentioned uh, neocons. Mm -hmm. uh, who are neoconservative and what impact uh, have they had uh, on US Middle East policy? So basically, there are several of the questions that I just okay. uh, linked okay. all together. If you want, uh, if you need to take more time. Uh, no, I don't. I, 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 got, uh, I, I got them to stop calling me. Um, uh, fantastic. So uh, let, let me just rephrase. Yes. We can go back with the last question. And then is the one on neocons. Okay. Uh, neocons, so, I, I heard the other two I, I was typing while, uh, while you're being. So I'll start with the neocons and we can go back to the others. Um, the neoconservatives are a, an ideological group or a um, philosophical group, a, a political a group of political philosophy uh, that began in the 1960s, but really didn't achieve much uh, prominence until the Reagan administration, uh, when they started to get a lot of um, uh, a lot of attention in Republican circles, in particular, and a lot of the Reagan administration's foreign policy was uh, was influenced them by them, but, but at that point, they weren't in government. They were writing op-eds, they were appearing on TV. At that time, there was no Fox News, so they didn't really have as much of a platform. Um, a lot of them were in intellectual circles. They were writing, you know, policy papers that would filter through to the Reagan administration. Then they, through the 90s, they started getting more influence with the rise of Fox News. They actually had a platform to be speaking. And, in the, and with the Bush administration, they actually entered government. So not everybody who is associated with them actually was a neocon. For example, Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld are often referred to as neocons, but they're really not. They really had a much more traditional kind of hawkish realism um, philosophy, but it aligned quite well with the neocons. And uh, like uh, Paul Wolfowitz, Doug Fife, and uh, a number of people within the office of uh, Dick Cheney. So what did the neocons believe and still believe because they're still around, they just don't really have a whole lot of influence anymore. They believe that the they are basically the conservative counterpart to liberal interventionists. So both liberal interventionists and neocons believe that US military power, diplomatic power, the full tools of the US government should be used to advance um, the uh, aims that aren't just the nuts and bolts of a trade treaty or uh, you know, 
who, uh, who has the right of passage in this particular waterway, they should have, they should be advancing US values. And the real difference is that liberal interventionists have a very different view of US values than the neocons did. Um, and a different view of uh, military power because US liberal interventionists are much more um, restrained about say invading a country and taking it over rather than just being more, more forward leaning in the use of military power to prevent genocide, for example. So liberal interventionists kind of came to their own after Rwanda and uh, Srebrenica and the, uh, the idea that the US had a responsibility to protect and should not just stand by and let genocide occur. Neocons had a more expansive uh, view of US power, which was that the US should um, deal with authoritarian states wherever possible by invading them, overthrowing them and setting up a democracy. And that the people of their theory of the case was that people everywhere in the world have the same goals and the same uh, ambitions and everybody wants to live in a democracy preferably and the, the best example of democracy is the US and the best example of an economic system is the American free market system and everybody in the world would love to live under this system if only they could. We have the power in a post-Cold War world to make that happen. So wherever we can, we should do that. So the neocons would say, well, we obviously can't do that in China. We can't do that, you know, perhaps in North Korea. But if we can do that in Iraq, let's do that in Iraq. And a number of the neocons were saying at the time, even, let's not stop with Iraq. You know, next stop after Iraq is Iran. And, you know, we will, we will do this wherever and whenever we can, because it's good for the US and it's good for the people of this country. And it will spread democracy and good things everywhere. Now, uh, I always felt that this was a um, misguided uh, view. Uh, as an anthropologist, I know that there are some things about all humans everywhere that are true. Nobody likes physical pain. Nobody, uh, you know, they're all, they're, there are many ways in which all humans are the same. You know, nobody likes to be hungry. Nobody likes uh, to be in pain. Nobody likes to be sick. How we deal with these things, though, varies greatly from one society to another. And the idea that everybody wants to live in a little carbon copy of America is simply not true. And I'm saying this as an anthropologist rather than as a policymaker. So when it enters the policy realm, I add to that, even if it were true, which it isn't, it would be exceptionally difficult to achieve this outcome because culture is pretty deeply set. So even if we were gonna go, even if we decided we want to invade Iraq and the Iraqis would like us to do that and would like us to set up a little America there, that's a lot harder than it sounds. And even if we could do that, is that the best use of US resources to set up little carbon copies of America throughout the Middle East or throughout the world? So at the time I, said, no, 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 this is not what, uh, this is, this fails on every single point that the neocons put up. And Joe Biden agreed with me on that. He was never in the neocon camp. Uh, there were very few Democrats in the neocon camp. This is mostly a Republican ideology, although a lot of the neocons started out as Democrats. So this is a group of thinkers that the first generation of them back in the 60s were almost all Democrats who left the Democratic party was well, some of them didn't even leave the party. Some of them like Richard Pearl remained Democrats, I believe throughout their whole lives, but they 
aligned with the Republicans. So this has been a Republican ideology that underlay the invasion of uh, Iraq in underlay some of the planning for Afghanistan, but not really because the Cheney-Rumsfeld camp were so hot to go in Afghanistan, in Iraq, that they kind of cut the neocon program short. So uh, the neocons were able to control policy for a very brief period of time, basically the invasion of Iraq and not much after that. And now they are really out of favor. There are not all that many people who would admit to being neocons nowadays. I hope it's an ideology that can be seen as having been tried and failed, but you never know. It, uh, most ideologies do come back in one way or another. And with that, uh, we can go back to the question from Celine, uh, the one related to best practice of lesser learned in engaging with civil society uh, mm, in the Middle yes. East. Yes, now this is a really, it's an excellent question and a really tough one. Uh, excellent because I think that's what we need to do, at least in the best world, that's what we would need to do. Chains should come from the grassroots and should be guided by and growing out of the people of any country in which the US or any country is operating. I very much believe that as a matter of both morality and politics, but also as just a general, this is the way you can effectively get things done, top-down solutions do not work as well as bottom-up solutions. Uh, if you go in and try to provide what uh, was referred to in Afghanistan and Iraq as government in a box, well, that's not really, <laughs> it doesn't work. Uh, it didn't work in either of those places. It's hard to see it working anywhere. Uh, every particular society operates in a different way. And it's never a good idea to talk over the people of a society. It's much better to empower social actors in a given community. Now, the reason this is a difficult question is that the US sort of tried to do that in the Arab Spring and it didn't really work. Uh, as we all know, the Arab Spring basically got snuffed out. Uh, got snuffed out everywhere except for Tunisia and an argument could be made that eventually got snuffed out there too. Um, does that mean that, it, that, that this process, this idea, this theory of the case of failure? I would say no. I would say it did not succeed with the Arab Spring, but eventually there will be an Arab Spring too. There will be some other manifestation of this and hopefully it will succeed then. And that when real, I do believe firmly that when real change comes in the Middle East, it will come from the people of the Middle East, uh, perhaps facilitated by outsiders, perhaps opposed by outsiders, but ultimately it'll be the people of the Middle East who will control their own destiny, inshallah. Now, Jonah, we have less than 10 minutes uh, and we have the last two questions. First question is, what happened to the U.S. drive to end the war in Yemen? And this, the last question basically is the million dollar question is, would the U.S. accept a multilateral security architecture in the Middle East? Hmm. Um, Back to you. First, first question on uh, the war in Yemen. Um, well, the, the U.S. has obviously not succeeded in ending the war in Yemen since it's still going on. Um, I'm, I remain unconvinced that, uh, that the effort to end the war in Yemen is actually a front burner issue for any nation. Um, and uh, it's tragic because uh, the human 
casualty toll is horrific and the prospect of anything good coming out of this war is minuscule. Uh, the question about a multilateral security guarantee, I think in theory it would be fine. I just see no real um, way in which this would function. Um, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a security guarantee for Iraq, for Syria, for Yemen, for Israel, Palestine? I think each of these areas has its own unique set of challenges and it's really difficult for me to see any set of players either being willing or able to impose any kind of meaningful uh, security framework. On this, then I can add something uh, because I think uh, the question was also related to the fact to have external power like Russia, China, uh, even Turkey uh, or India uh, being a, a security guarantor. Do you see that there is something that it could be practical and do you see that something that the US uh, can also join? I, I think that guaranteeing something without putting up military force sufficient to make it happen is an empty pledge. So what is a security guarantee if you're not actually willing to risk your own troops to make it happen? Um, and I don't see any nation looking at the US experience in Iraq and saying, oh yeah, uh, we're, we're signing up for that. That's, that sounds like a great opportunity. Uh, the US obviously has no real interest in sending troops back to Iraq or any of these places. It's hard to see why any other country would. India has a long track record of providing peacekeepers, but that assumes that there is peace to keep. So I think that if there were a, a, closely, a closely bound, geographically bound area where there was peace and there needed to be peacekeepers, yes, I could see that happening. Uh, that could go through the UN and India has provided peacekeepers in the past. Any of these nations could provide peacekeepers, but that gets back to the issue of if you have peacekeepers, then you, they're, they're not really a security guarantee because the whole job of peacekeepers is when, when bullets start flying, they generally, they, then you no longer have a piece to keep. So I, uh, I'm kind of doubtful of what would happen. I think the useful part of this, though, is that any solutions that can be negotiated diplomatically and diplomatically guaranteed, that means not boots on the ground, not sending in military, but, uh, for example, guaranteed with the threat of sanctions. Uh, um, on a multilateral basis, I think are a great uh, avenue and perhaps the only avenue. An example of this is the JCPOA. You know, this worked. This was working. This kept Iran from being a nuclear power, or at least uh, did the job it was trying to do in limiting Iran's nuclear uh, program to its agreed upon limits. And that was in everybody's interest. I think it was a huge blunder by the Trump administration to renege on this deal. Uh, I think that that model uh, can work for the future, but also let's remember this was an incredibly difficult deal to negotiate. And the first time a US president came in who, who could renege on it, he did. So I think that doesn't bode well for the future. I do think though that that shouldn't mean that it can't work. It just means it's very difficult and we shouldn't place, we shouldn't expect it to do more than it can do. 
at, at least uh, with your last answer, we have still a little bit of hope uh, yeah. during this uh, increased uh, year of anxiety. And with this, uh, John, I would like to personally thank you very much for your extremely informative lecture. And also, I would like to thank all of your, all, all our audience that has been with us until the end. And a very big special thank to MEI Eventin for making this event possible. Uh, before concluding, I will just to mention that next week, we are going on with lecture number five, uh, always talking about geopolitical competition in the Middle East. And this time, uh, our colleague Kevin Lim will talk about Israel more than just Palestine. Have a good day to everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for joining.